Hi, I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I would like a moment of your time because I wanted you to know about Dr. Milton Friedman's TV series, Free to Choose. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and on another edition of the Remnant podcast, uh, I'm back in Washington after my sojourns out west to equatorial Washington, where um, it is uh, like Rangoon during the rainy season here. Um, and I'm very excited about this week's episode, which is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. More about that later. Um, but I'm very excited about uh, this episode because while Washington is going nuts with the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings and the Woodward book and the various white supremacist hand gestures that are proliferating across our country. We're going to geek out with on some on on some old school Hayek stuff. And we have to do that. Uh, probably the best person one could get. Well, one of the top three people in the world one could get for this kind of thing. Peter Betke of you're with Mercatus, correct? And and. George Mason University Economics Department. Yep. Okay. Thank and, you, Jonah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, well, thank you for coming. Thank you for doing this. Uh, we're doing this by Skype for people who are wondering why I um, uh, why we might sound a little different than normal. And uh, you have a new, amazingly expensive new book <laughs> on on Friedrich Hayek. Why don't you tell us what it is? And I will ask you the single greatest question any uh, one can be asked when they have a new book out. What's your book about? Okay. Um, well, um, thank you very much for having me on here and, and for this opportunity to talk to you about Hayek. The book itself is part of a series, which is called Great Thinkers and Economic Series. That's edited by Tony Thurwall over at uh, Palgrave Macmillan. Its uh, primary audience is other scholars and therefore and students, and therefore it's a library uh, book. There's a collection probably of about 25 books in the series and growing at the moment. And I was asked to do the one on Hayek, and so it was a great opportunity for me. It is an expensive book because it's a library bi uh, uh, binding. Even the ebook uh, is like that. But you can also, uh, if you follow uh, the sort of path in the Palgrave Macmillan thing, there's ability to get an on-demand uh, on version, which is less expensive, actually reasonable, $25. But oh, your, library, your library has to belong to it. But the... We'll put a link to that in the show notes for sure. Little, thank for you. But the uh, the book itself tries to explain the arc of Hayek's career um, and the evolution of his ideas. It's not just about Hayek, the man. The best person for that would be Bruce Caldwell, um, who's writing. He's the official biographer of Hayek, and he's the editor of the Collected Works. My book is more about how Hayek's ideas refined themselves over the long course of his career in response to the debates that he was involved in and to the events that he lived through. And so, and the main idea is that he kept on first trying to get the institutional background that was taken as given, that is liberal institutions of property contract and consent and the rule of law to be, you know, taken as rather than being just treated as given, but an object of investigation in your economics, in your political economy. And then what he particularly emphasized about that was how these alternative institutional environments affect the way that we 
as economic actors learn within the environment. And so that's his famous knowledge problem right. idea. Gonna... And so I try to really sort of develop that notion of the knowledge problem as it exists in the economy, in the polity, and then ultimately in the society at large. Okay. So let's, um, let's start for, uh, let's start close to the ground for Hayek newbies, first timers, fresh fish, however you want to call them. Yeah. Friedrich Hayek, who was he? Yeah. Um, where was he born? Uh, why is that important? And then we can take it from there. Yeah. So the first thing is Hayek was born in the late 19th century, 1899, and lived throughout to 1992. So this amazing life. And if you think about that, he's born in Vienna. And so he's born in Findesickel, Vienna, which is one of the cultural uh, great hotspots in the history of, of, of Western civilization. And, uh, and then he actually, you know, served in World War One. Uh, was educated after World War One, and then lived through the tumultuous times of the 20s and the 1930s, the Great Depression and the rise of fascism. He escaped, uh, you know, Vienna to move to London. Uh, but then, you know, we have the Great Depression and then World War Two. And then after World War Two, he moves to the United States. He teaches in the United States for a decade before he moves back to Europe. And then in the 1970s, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in economics right in the midst of where the Western uh, democracies were suffering from high bouts of inflation and high bouts of economic stagnation. And so his ideas sort of came about again. They ebb and flow. And then in the 1980s, he's, he's working on these broader projects as his career is coming to an end. And then, of course – you know, communism collapses. And again, Hayek's ideas, because back in the 1930s, he was a major critic of Keynesian economics and of the market socialist economics uh, that was being advocated by uh, by some individuals. And so he's both against the dominant trend of macroeconomic public policy and he's also against the and critical of the promise of socialism. His most famous book is called The Road to Serfdom, in which efforts to try to plan the economy and, and, and bring socialism into practice, Hayek argues, will end up by delivering for us not the promise of a better future world, but instead deliver us into a state of a new new era of serfdom. And that book was his most famous book that was published in 1944. And, uh, and so, you know, his career kind of, you know, had meteoric rise to fame and tremendous success as a scientist and as a scholar and then crushing defeat as, you know, people moved against him in the intellectual world to then only have uh, a kind of rise again at the end of his career as the Keynesian system and the Keynesian consensus broke down and the real existing communist countries fell apart in the late 1980s. And then in 1992, he passed away. Okay. So what I think I should do here is, um, first of all, there's an implicit bargain I have with listeners that there will be no math. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so uh, we're not going to do any, almost anything on the velocity of money, currency, <laughs> that, you know, there are other podcasts for that. Okay. Sure. And I understand yeah. that he has all sorts of things about monetary policy that to me re- still read like witchcraft and we're just not going to touch it. But I have quirky uh, but d- deep 
interest in in Hayek. He is easily uh, probably. Let me put it this way: I would say he's probably the the philosopher, public intellectual who has had that I that I'd never met that has the deepest influence on me. And uh, with, with the possible exception of probably Irving Crystal, um, which may sound contradictory to a lot of people. And so I have some views. And basically what I want to do is I want to use you to stress test my views on Hayek, if that's sure. okay. Okay. Yep. So first of all, uh, I agree with you that Road to Serfdom is his most famous book. I think it is a widely misunderstood book because he wasn't making a hard prediction. That's right. Right. He was making... You know, one of the I think one of the distinctions that people forget is that prophets don't necessarily make predictions; they issue warnings, right? Yep. yep. And he was making an argument about how if you go down a certain path, this is where it will lead, because the only way you can fulfill your ambitions about a a perfect society, and I think this is one of the great themes of his work, right? It runs runs straight through Fatal Conceit. If you if you think that the the human mind has the ability to um, construct a perfectly ordered society where everybody is satisfied and gets what they want out of society, um, you'll end up with a tyrannical society where people yeah. are turned into serfs, right? Um, yeah. That said, I, when people ask me what book they should read first or at all of Hayek, I never say Road to Serfdom because while I think it's a good book, it's also his most polemical and political yeah. book. Mm-hmm. And I, there, are, there are essays or, or I think The Fatal Conceit, which we can talk about it in a little bit, um, that I think are a better macro view of his views. Where do you come down on all of that? What have I left out? What? Where am I wrong? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that Hayek's Road to Serfdom is a brilliant book that has been misunderstood because it became a coffee table book. Mm-hmm. And then it became a caricature for other people. You're exactly right. He's issuing a warning about what would happen. He already just lived through this with his colleagues in Germany and German language, not in Germany, but in Austria and German language uh, community of scholars. He comes to Britain and he hears them making the same kind of mistakes that he thought that he had just witnessed. And so he's trying to warn his British colleagues um, who remember that in the LSE and, the, and you know was founded by London uh, School of Economics for yeah the London sorry the London School of Economics uh, is you know founded by you know Sidney and Beatrice Webb to you know take the ideas of marginalism you know this is the whole Fabian socialist idea and the right. idea was is that his colleagues many of his colleagues believed that we are socialists in our economics because we are liberal in our politics. And by liberal, they meant the old, you know, individualist liberalism. And um, and and so the social problems that the older liberalism had brought up had a solution to them in the socialist planning. But yet we could still combine the democratic principles of liberalism with this socialist planning. So this is what he wants to wrestle with and try to give them a warning. But precisely because he's giving the warning, if you heed his warning, you're not going to get the result that he's warning you about getting, right. right? And so this creates this kind of dilemma because he didn't say that every step towards you know any kind of uh, implementation of, of uh, social policy is going to lead us to the gulag, right? That's not what he's arguing. Uh, what he, you know, there's no slippery slope in that sense. What there is is a logic of a situation and a logic of organization. And then that's hard to tease out because as much as that book is polemical, 
it's also based on all of his actual work in, in economics. And so it's, it's this weird mix where, you know, to follow the logic of the argument, you'd have to know a little bit about what he was trying to do in economics. And since it, but it went, you know, viral, as we would say today. Right. Because of Reader's Digest, largely, yes, right? Yes, the Reader's Digest thing. And so it became this book. And I would say a similar thing, The Constitution of Liberty, I think, is a fantastic book. It's very foreboding. It's thick and, you know, it's detailed in history and philosophy and law. Uh, but it also became a, a you know, a, a coffee table book because Margaret Thatcher, you know, eventually picked it up and said, this is our book. Right. And right. Um, and so then it became this sort of icon to those on the right to just say, oh, I own the Constitutional Liberty, but don't read it. And then this devil book, you know, for those on the left. And so I agree with you that probably the best way to get to Hayek is to actually look at some of his essays this is kind of intriguing because Hayek is a product of the 20th century of intellectual life as opposed to the 19th century. In the 19th century, the way people communicate was through books. But Hayek is part of that new generation that's now also becoming the master of writing the scientific paper, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of his essays are these, you know, papers that are attempt to be contributions to either philosophy, politics, or economics. And so sometimes they're dense, but you get most of his really insightful uh, original insights are in those papers. And they include things anywhere from very, you know, kind of technical papers like the primacy, the abstract, to very concrete papers of economics, like the use of knowledge, but then also a famous paper like which is a uh, an appendix to is the constitutional liberty why i'm not a conservative which is more about you know his the relationship between his epistemology and his politics in some sense and so i think those essays really do give you the most uh the best window into hayek okay so uh because you brought it up i was going to save it for later uh but since this is a uh stress test on my grievances um, I'll, I'll skip ahead. Um, I love the essay, why I'm not a conservative. I hate the headline and I hate what a lot of people use that, how a lot of people use that essay, including, uh, Milton Friedman, who, you know, all praise be upon him. You know, they, 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 they name check the title of that essay and, uh, without acknowledging a lot of this, uh, this is my view, a lot of the substance within the essay. First of all, uh, Hayek says in that essay that uh, he's pretty clear that he is talking about the continental conservatives, right? The throne and altar, blood and soil, demise types who want to use the state to impose a vision of social justice or social order or whatever you want to call it. He also says in that essay that America is arguably the one place in the world where you can be a defender of liberty and call yourself a conservative, and finally, at the end of the essay, spoiler alert, he describes him. He also he also says that he he also says he doesn't like the word libertarian. Right. And he ends the essay by describing himself um, as an old Whig, which is his label and Burke's label for Burkeanism. And I'm not mm -hmm. I, I am not arguing that Hayek is a conservative. I think he's a classical liberal. I think that's what he would say. But in the American, you know, at least until the rise of the asinine alt-right stuff, 
Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the Venn diagram of a of a modern American conservative and a classical liberal they're not the same thing, but there's a lot of overlap between the two circles. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of libertarians and there are a lot of liberals who cite that essay for purely debating points because they the, the title is so convenient to them without acknowledging the sort of richer substance within. And so first of all. What label do you think best fits Hayek? Because you know he, there are people like Murray Rothbard, and others had some some salty language for for Hayek at times. <laughs> and I, this is the point I wanted to get to originally um, was in in Road to Serfdom, but also at greater length in Constitution of Liberty. You know Hayek says things about a universal basic income, about health care, that um, are certainly um, fighting words for you know Randians. Yeah. And many sort of, uh, you know, you know, anarcho-capitalist types. So where do you put Hayek in the grander tradition of the sort of, you know, family tree of classical liberalism, libertarianism, Anglo-American conservative, Whiggish tradition? Like where <laughs> there's a, a lot. Go, there's a lot going on there in that question. Uh, it's a great question. I think that the. Um, The why I'm not a conservative essay should always be read in tandem with errors of constructivism um, because that's one of his more concentrated essays. And the reason why I say that is because what he's arguing in the uh, why I'm not a conservative is that um, the critical scholar should always have the right to question all of society's values. But what they can't do is an epistemological constraint is question all of them at once. So you can only question against a backdrop of given all these other value systems, and then you're just going to look at the pressure points on one of those. And that's also the problem with the error of constructivism, because constructivism was the belief that you could rewrite you know, society, you know, root and branch. And Hayek is advocating that no one can do that because there's no epistemologically Archimedean point by which we could stand and then critique this. We're always within the context of this specificity. Now, what does that mean then for our mores and all these other things like that? So Hayek, I think you're 100% right that Hayek is talking about this continental conservatism, but I think it's, again, like in The Road to Serfdom, he's kind of warning that some of his friends, in quotes, that are tangentially involved in a Mont Pelerin society or other kind of things, like, for example, Wilhelm Rupka mm-hmm. or, for example, Russell Kirk in America, that they come unfortunately close in some of their writings to sounding very much like these conservatives that he's trying to challenge. And so he's not saying he's not, you're you know, right. I mean, he thought of the U.S. experience and the U.S. intellectual environment of, of the, the spirit of the founding fathers and those who respect the Constitution and whatnot. That's kind of, you know, his people, right, in, in some sense, as he says in Law, Legislation, and Liberty, the beginning of it, he says that uh, we have to recognize the noble and inspiring project of the Founding Fathers, but that we now we have to fulfill it rather than, you know, so it's not rejecting it, it's fulfilling it uh, where you go from on that. And so, you know, where's Hayek is a liberal in the classical sense. He's, he's a, what he calls, and he wants a renewed uh, true radical liberalism is the phrase that he uses, a true radical liberalism. And that puts him in like he's, you know, David Hume, Adam Smith, 
uh, you know, coming into the, the the 19th century, you have you know Tocqueville and and uh, and Lord Acton. Um, Mill is a fascinating character to him because he's both, in some sense, the pinnacle of that way of thinking, and also the person who cuts against it. And you come into the 20th century, you have Mises and and uh, you know uh, Frank Knight and and these individuals who he's building on, and so he's not easily pigeonholed into the political, you know, parties kind of thing, you know, Republican, Democrat or, or whatever. But what he is, is he's very much this sort of uh, throwback to this liberal tradition that begins in the Scottish Enlightenment. And uh, well, that's it doesn't begin this guy, but the Scottish Enlightenment is a major developer of it. And it comes all the way through uh, into his times. And like, you know, Smith or Hume, what he's worried about is building institutions in which bad men can do least harm, not building institutions which can allow the best and the brightest to rule over us, you know, to, to achieve greatness. And so it's always the concern with the idea that we need to build these constraints um, because what we the worst thing that can happen is, uh, you know, as as Hume put it, that knaves get in control or that, as Smith put it, the arrogance of the statesman. And so what they want to do is they want to guard against opportunism, which is knavery or arrogance, which is the abuse of reason. And so you're going to build institutions and those institutions look a lot like. A lot of the constitutional constraints, the rule of law and whatnot, which we associate with in the United States with, quote unquote, conservatism. And so he's not why I'm not a conservative. It's not against the kind of idea of of tradition or any. In fact, he's a defender of tradition and the importance of tradition or traditional morality. It's just that as a thinker, you want to think critically about whether or not these institutions are doing their job in making sure that bad men can do least harm. Right. I mean, part of the Anglo-American conservative tradition is we are defenders of a radical revolution, right? right. And, uh, and a, a, a classically liberal revolution. Flawed, you know, women, slaves, we can rehearse all of that all day long. But the, the, sort, of, the sort of Calvin Coolidge Fourth of July speech notion that the principles that government derives its authority and legitimacy from the consent of the governed, that we are, you know, citizens, not subjects, that, that all men are created equal, that those rules cannot be improved upon. And so conservatives today are basically, uh, let me put it this way, because things are in flux. Conservatives of the kind that I want to associate myself with um, are trying to conserve radical propositions um, that are enshrined in that sort of classical liberal tradition. Um, we may also want to preserve other traditions outside of the role, the scope of government um, or law and legislation that other libertarian types or free market types may be more skeptical or might Hayekian types may be more skeptical of. But um, I want to get back to the, I, I think, you know, one of the things we should, I, I have other questions I want to get to the, my own list of grievances. But uh, just for the sake of listeners, you know, you, you say that, uh, and I think you're absolutely right, obviously, but uh, you say that Hayek was respecter of tradition. Can you sort of, in an easily digestible, understandable way, explain to the layman what Hayek's view of 
tradition was, right? Because more, normal, the normal understanding, uh, the, the, the sort of stereotypical understanding of what libertarians think of tradition is they think traditions are bad, right? Uh-huh. And, um, and how it relates to, um, you know, emergent order or spontaneous order and the sort of notion that, you know, one of the things I find most useful about Hayek is his explanation of how there is so much embedded knowledge in certain practices and yeah. traditions that were discovered through trial and error. Yeah, I think you that, sort of that's, explain that stuff a little bit. Yeah, I'll try. I mean, that's a tough question because it also invokes one of the major tensions in Hayek that needs to be addressed. So I'll get to that at the end. But what Hayek saw, so when Hayek, what I try to do in the book is I divide Hayek's career into basically, you know, four different segments. Uh, the first segment being economics as a coordination problem. That's when he's doing all his technical economics, the stuff you were saying we weren't going to talk about before right. about velocity and everything. The second stage of his career is what he call what I call and what he called the abuse of reason project. And it's in that project that in in order to try to answer those technical questions, economics, he became more and more convinced that you had to answer the questions about the background conditions within which economic life takes place. Go back to Hume. Hume says the foundations of our uh, social order are property, contract and consent. And yet they were treated as given. So they got to be treated as forgotten in the technical economics. So Hayek's trying to get us to come back and think about that. But his question is, is why is this such a hard point to get across? Mm -hmm. I mean, David Hume and Adam Smith, they taught us this. We need to have property contract and consent and the institutions that support that. And socialists were saying what? We're going to abolish private property. Right. We're going to, you know, substitute for the market, which is contract. We're going to substitute administration. And so Hayek's like, why why are you guys like not getting this point? And so he started then to think, oh, it must be a deep philosophical problem. And that's where he gets his whole contrast between constructivist rationalism versus critical rationalism and the understanding of spontaneous order as being consistent with critical rationalism, but alien to a constructivist rationalist. That is someone who thinks they can reconstruct the society from root and, root and branch based on the brow of a genius. Okay, And he says no. And so then the question is, is that the rules of our morality may be a product not of our reason, right? But – and he even comes with a stronger thing where he says uh, we have reason – excuse me, we have rules not because we have reason, but we have reason because we followed rules, and this is where you have the big accident, you know, that you talk about as well, that mm-hmm. how did this come about? Well, it comes about through a bunch of trial and error with people, none of whom, you know, had this grand plan that they were going to have, you know, for the whole system. But we're just trying to, like, muddle their way through and they adopt certain rules of behavior. And we find out those who adopt those rules have a larger you know, community, they're able to sustain greater numbers, they get greater crop yields or whatever. And so people start looking at demonstration effects and they, you know, and this whole system sort of slowly, you know, creeps and creeps and creeps until it becomes a kind of codification, right? That effort that takes place in the formal law is a codification of an already existing body of rules that we follow. And as Hayek Again, you know, as someone who grew up in the 20, you know, born in 1899, so he's growing up in the 20th century in which secularism is growing 
his parents are secular, so he's not really educated in the religious tradition as you might have been in an earlier age. What happens is he ends up by later on in his life becoming very, very respectful of religion as a carrier of these embodied knowledge, as you're saying. Like right. there's so much you know, knowledge in these traditions that we don't rationally assess. Right. And that they, and, and what we then need to do to be reasonable is to actually learn how to talk about where this knowledge comes from, what's its benefit, how does it evolve and all of that. And so that's where you get this kind of uh, interesting evolutionary argument. The tension that Hayek identifies is that where we first learn about these rules is in our local tribe. And so a lot of our moral intuitions are grounded in in-group morality, right? right? Whereas the extended order of the market to experience this tremendous growth, you know, Deirdre McCloskey's great fact, right? To get that, that requires the extended order and extensive div- division of labor. And so the moral demands of the great society are at odds oftentimes with the moral intuitions of our, you know, tribal past. And it's this kind of tension that Hayek is hoping that the institutions of a liberal order will be able to negotiate, to be able to tap into the embedded wisdom that's involved in our evolutionary past, yet at the same time, allow us to get beyond our in-group affiliations and allow us to interact in a more uh, you know, cosmopolitan kind of liberal world, you know, the sort of Kantian idea of strangers nowhere in this world. And that's his difference between his catalactic order. That's now we're not, we're substituting technical Greek words for math, but, but like he calls catalaxy, which is the Greek word to mean the market order. But if you go back to the original Greek, it also means turning a stranger into a friend. And, mm-hmm. and, and so, this is what Hayek is seeing, what markets do. And so Hayek is the great modern defender of the do commerce thesis, right? That commerce, sweet commerce, you know, modifies us and, and, and makes us gentle in our manners and allows us to interact with people and it moves it forward like that. And so I think this is a uh, – I don't know if that explains it. No, no, no. That's, that's helpful. I mean, so, I mean, the way I – first of all, you know – this gets to the fatal conceit where he has this distinction between the microcosm and the macrocosm, yes, yeah. right? And so, which is a huge theme of, you know, a huge influence on me and my understanding of all this stuff and, and, and when it was sort of always on my shoulder as I was working on my book was this, this inherent tension where the, you know, because I've become sort of a shumperter groupie, groupie in the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this idea of how... In the fa- in, in our families, we're all socialists, right? Yep. We don't charge our kids for food. We don't, you know, uh, we don't charge them rent yet, right? You know, um, uh, and in the in the family, it, it really is from each according to his ability to each according to his need, right? You, if you have a bunch of kids and one's dumber than the rest, you don't say, well, you know, <laughs> you don't get any of the good stuff because you're dumb, right? I mean, it's like love and and familial commitment and duty and honor and all of these things which are extra rational commitments are much more powerful than market or rational principles inside the family that's where we civilize people in the extended order of the macrocosm 
that's how you deal with strangers, right? Because in the in man's natural environment, if you have a barrel of if you have a bushel of apples and I want your apples, the way I take them from, the way I get them is I hit you over the head with a rock. And what commerce does is it creates a zero sum situation and makes it a win win situation. You get money, I get apples. We both have what we want. And um, and I, and so you know, as I've said a bunch of times on this podcast, you know, the 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 to borrow from the Reese's peanut butter cup commercial, the great danger um, of the modern age is everyone wants to get their gamine shaft in, in your gazelle shaft. And, um, mm-hmm. but this tension brings out a point about Hayek, which is that he's actually remarkably tolerant of, of normally evolved, of, of evolved traditions, right? Because mm-hmm. it's sort of like the old, the old parable, which may be apocryphal, about how they were trying to figure out where to put a road at Columbia University. And when Eisenhower was president, uh, you know, the, the architects said this, the, the landscapers said that. And he said, here's an idea. Um, let's do nothing for a year and see which way the kids walk. Yep. And then, yeah. then we'll put a path there, right? Um, that's the sort of trial and error stuff that is embed the embedded knowledge, right? One of the examples I always use with college kids is of food. I mean, you think about all of the trial and error that resulted into French cuisine. Yep. And yet the average person, the average great French chef only knows, you know, it's sort of like the eye pencil thing only knows a fraction of what went in to creating duck a la range, right? Um, and cuisine is an excellent example. Um, as is, as is, uh, you know, cult, other cultural forms like jazz music and where you have all this mixing and, you know, no one could control where it's going and yet somehow it goes and it, it, you know, moves in this fashion. I was just going to say, I think that one of the big puzzles for Hayek that ultimately culminates in the, in the, the fatal conceit, um, is that if you actually read Adam Smith with Hayek glasses, Right on. Yeah. Uh, there's very there's points that Adam Smith brings up right from the beginning of the book. Right. So he puts the puzzle right in the beginning that's scarce in our lifetime. Do we have the opportunity to make close personal friends, you know, with with this circle? Right. So but yet we rely on multitudes for our daily survival. So the question is, is how is it that we're going to achieve that? So he says one way you could achieve it is through fawning at other people. The other way is by taking, right? You could just, you know, try to take everything, but both fawning and taking are not going to generate the kind of expansion and the productive capacity and exchange opportunities that are available that you could get by, in fact, engaging in trade, right? And so what's involved in the gaining of trade? And then he gives the example. So this is the famous it's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the baker, the brewer that we expect our dinner, right? Right. But no, he doesn't say it's not from the benevolence or mom and dad that the baby gets fed, right? Right, right. It is the benevolence of that. But th- that's because those are the intimate orders that would require if we had close personal friendship ties. We wouldn't want those things to be like market transactions. At the same time, you know, we don't – we can't rely – on that kind of norm to govern when we're dealing with people across borders and interacting in trade. And so it's this play between the intimate order or what you call the microcosm and the, you know, and the, the macrocosm or the intimate order and the extended order or, 
in Hayek's earlier writings, he used the phrase ta- taxis and cosmos. Uh, again, you know, it's just Greek terms or whatever that relate to these things. But the issue, um, I think, is a really important one because this relates to why it is uh, people get upset because exactly what you said, they confuse the different orders that we're talking about. And part of the criticism of market speak is when people talk about markets in orders that it doesn't belong, like right. the intimate orders, like, you know, how do I have transactions in the family? You know, what do I do in my interactions with my kids or my wife or my significant other or whatever? You don't have those kind of, you know, uh, issues. Though, of course, there's always economic concerns in that joint production function of the family that's involved. And so, like you said, you don't, uh, you might not not allocate resources to one of the ones that might not be as as up on the up to speed as the other one. But you also would try to make uh, ideas if you had a, a particular kid who had particular talents. You would make those allocations, you know, to try to have them have a if you could, you know, have a life. My mom just passed away a year ago. My dad passed away much earlier than that, but my, my mom passed away. She, so I, both my parents are passed away, but my sister and I, we didn't grow up. My sister and my brother and I, we did not grow up in, uh, like what you would call an economically privileged environment, but we grew up in a very privileged environment because we had parents that supported us in all of our different endeavors and wanted to help us and did the stuff that they needed to do to do it. And so I recognize how privileged I am because of what my parents, you know, provided for me in life, but that what they provided for me in life was support and encouragement. And that was amazing uh, because of what they did, but it wasn't like I got a silver spoon given to me, you know, and, and anything. And I think that sometimes we misunderstand what even, you know, privileges and opportunity is and all of that. But that's in that intimate order of the family. It would have been terrible if I would have went down to go get cereal. My mom says, okay, you know, three bucks. Right. (laughs) You know, so this, this play between the intimate order and extended order, you know, my, my friend, Steve Horowitz has a book. Friend of mine as well. Okay. He has a a book called Hayek and the modern family in which he tries to play. He has a book, um, that tries to play off of these kind of conversations as well. You know, you talk about we're talking about the extended order and the intimate order, and you know, one one way to bridge the two in a very successful way is with zip recruiters. So let me read our first ad. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I certainly hope you appreciated that transition. I thought it was particularly smart. But you know what's not smart? Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. But you know what is smart? ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't wait for candidates to find you. ZipRecruiter finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. No more sorting through the wrong resumes. No more waiting for the right candidates to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. All right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. ZipRecruiter.com slash 
Dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Dingo, D-I-N-G-O, ZipRecruiter.com slash Dingo. Now, let me point out something to listeners. Maybe you're not looking to actually hire people, but it would be good for this podcast if you checked out ZipRecruiter anyway. It's for free. Use the the, the, the phrase that pays, Dingo. Um, it'll help us with advertisers. It will uh, impress people with the, the, the power of this fully functional podcast. So anyway, ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, um, okay, so uh, back to uh, my list of, uh, grie- they're not grievances, they're just sort of uh, things that, uh, that you know, I very rarely have access to uh, high scholars that I can bounce this stuff off of. So, first of all, why don't you explain who Ludwig von Mises was? his relationship to Hayek, and the differences, if any, between their um, philosophies or approaches. Okay. Um, So Ludwig von Mises was a great economic uh, scholar. Um, He uh, was a student of Bambavrik, who was the, after Karl Menger, the next generation of leading thinkers in economics in Austria, that had this big influence internationally. So it wasn't just limited to the, to the Austrian community. Bambavrik was one of the most famous economists in the world. And Mises was his student, as was Joseph Schumpeter. Um, and, uh, and, and so then uh, Mises, after he finishes his graduate school work, he serves in World War I. And then when he comes back from World War I, he works um, in basically government advisory position within the country of Austria, um, handling the um, accounts uh, after World War One, the sort of settlement accounts and everything. And he also works for what would be it's called it's like the Chamber of Commerce, but the Chamber of Commerce in Vienna is not really like the way we think about the Chamber of Commerce. It's more like the Council of Economic Advisors. Mm-hmm. And so that's a more apt way to think about what Mises was at. He was at the Council of Economic Advisors. And he also teaches at the university. And he was um, – Hayek uh, was a kind of after the war, immediately after the war, was more or less a Fabian socialist. And so Mises – uh, sort of um, was a little bit harsh for him <laughs> and when he first <laughs> heard him. And so he he is a student of his technically, but he's more or less doing his graduate studies with a man named Wieser, who was also a professor and uh, a contemporary of Bambavrik's and more amenable to sort of Fabian ideas. And what happens is, is that when Hayek graduates, he gets a job with Mises Visa writes a letter and Hayek comes and, and Mises is able to hire him and they work together in a very intimate work relationship, scholarly and scientific relationship for the next decade um, until Hayek goes to London. And during that time, they develop the business cycle theory, but also their critique of socialism. That's where the socialist calculation debate comes from? The socialist calculation debate, which is Mises' brilliant insight, which to put it in a nutshell, what he really tries to say is that you have to sort out from the array of technologically feasible projects, those which are economically viable. And the way that you do that is based on the incentives that property provides for us, the information 
that prices provide for us, and then the profit and loss calculus, which allows us to you know, either be lured into a venture because of pure profits or disciplined because of the existence of losses. So we rearrange our affairs. You take that whole system of property prices and profit and loss, and you think about what all's entailed in a businessman's judgment to enter into a market or not enter into a market. That's the effort of engaging in economic calculation. And what the socialists were doing was trying to have economic calculation, but without those institutions. Right. Right. So I'm going to get rid of those institutions. Now make that decision. And Mises's brilliant insight was you can't make that decision without those institutions. So socialism is going to have to forego rational economic calculation. But it turns out if you forego rational economic calculation, your economic system can't operate. And so socialism promises this burst of productivity, but its own methods of getting that burst of productivity will guarantee that it can't achieve those bursts of productivity. And so this was, you know, his insight. And it was in a book, in an article called, you know, the problem of economic calculation, in the socialist commonwealth, and then later developed in a, in a book of his called socialism. And then Hayek picked up on those ideas and one of the really important aspects about the relationship between Hayek and Mises, there's two of them. The first one is that Hayek thought that Mises was right, but he never completely agreed with all the steps that he made in his argument. Mm -hmm. And so that was a motivator for him to try to clarify the steps that were necessary in his mind to get to the conclusion that he thought was the right conclusion that Mises had led to. And so and then the second thing is that Lionel Robbins became very influenced by Mises as well in the early 20s. And Lionel Robbins was the main professor at the London School of Economics. Uh, Mises's works are not translated into English until the mid 1930s. And Mises himself is not a eloquent English speaker. Right. Robbins happened to be someone who could read German and knew German really well. So he had access to Mises and could learn from him, could read him and all stuff. And obviously Hayek's a native German speaker, so he can learn from him. But Hayek had spent a year in the United States with the help of Mises. And so he actually could muddle through with English. And when Robbins wanted to recruit a scholar to come to the London School of Economics to help him, in the um, the battle, the emerging battle with Keynes uh, over the nature of the Great Depression and how to get out of it, you know, his, his he ended up by tapping Hayek because Hayek could have access to talking to English audiences. Mises's socialism essay and his other books don't get translated into English until Hayek and Robbins do that in the 1930s. And they bring Mises out in a famous collection called Collectivist Economic Planning, which Hayek edited. And that's the first time that Mises' essay is, appears in English. And then second, they then tr get his book, Socialism, translated the year after that. And so – and then his book on business cycles doesn't get translated into English until around that time as well. Um, and so Robbins and Hayek are responsible for introducing Mises to the English audience rather than on the continent. But on the continent, Mises was a famous economist 
In fact, he was the uh, person responsible from the Rockefeller Foundation for giving grants to scholars in the continent to try to come over to the United States to be, you know, integrated into the international scientific community. And so Mises was a very, very famous uh, uh, scholar. Um, He eventually has to leave Vienna and he goes and teaches in Geneva. Uh, where he's with Wilhelm Rupka and other people in, in, in at the uh, uh, what became known as the Geneva School, and he taught international trade there, and then eventually he migrates to the United States, escaping narrowly uh, from the claws of fascism, and uh, comes to the the uh, for for your listeners, there's a famous uh, Batman uh, cartoon which actually plays out the Mises escape. Uh, from, uh, from that, you can look it up. It's, it's actually pretty awesome, but, um, but he comes to the United States and then he teaches that he first works at the national Bureau of economic research, NBER, which, you know, people can hear about today. He works there from 1940 to 1944. And then he starts teaching at New York university and he taught from New York university from 1944 to 1969. And in 1969, he was awarded, the Distinguished Fellow Award from the American Economic Association. So again, an extremely accomplished, well-known figure, uh, but he later, you know, uh, also became very much a lightning rod figure of, uh, you know, the contrast between, say, uh, Mises versus Marx, right? Mm -hmm. Because he was such a strong critic of socialism and uh, of government intervention in general. And so he influences a lot of people that then develop the modern American libertarian movement, such as Murray Rothbard or Ayn Rand. But he also had a big influence on Robert Nozick, uh, because Nozick uh, will tell the story that he was kind of a uh, kind of just your typical sort of socialist kid in, in school. And then he p- stumbled upon Mises's article and he was like, oh, you know, so that doesn't work. So then what am I? And so that's what led him to his position. And so Mises has this tremendous uh, influence uh, at a at a sort of scientific level as it's carried through with um, people like from Hayek and his student Fritz Machlup, who taught at Princeton and uh, was a president of the American Economic Association, or Israel Kirzner, who uh, just retired from NYU about a decade ago. So, uh, so, yeah. um, so I, I, I floated this when I had Russ Roberts on here. Um, I, I, I floated this past him, and he kind of rolled his eyes and said, "I don't know what that means," um, but. Uh, <laughs> My impression, and I can't remember who first made this case to me, but it stuck with me whenever I read von Mises ever after, was that the differences between von Mises and Hayek were in part, and maybe it's just because von Mises was so much more German um, but uh, in his writing, but uh, the differences were sort of like uh, that, that Mises was more Kantian, sort of more categorical, oh, yeah. not, not evidentiary-based. He was more sort of like came to his conclusions through pure reason and said, obviously there can be no disputing this because I've carried through all these steps. And Hayek was always much more, much less top down and much more bottom up and much more empirical. Mm-hmm. Um, and co- much more, let's von Mises was much more, this is the best place to put the footpath at Columbia. Um, because I've, <laughs> I've concluded this is the best place to do it. And Hayek was much more of the, let's see where the kids walk. 
Is yeah. that wrong? Well, I don't, I don't think it's, I wouldn't say it's wrong, but I'm not sure I would say it's right either. So there's uh -huh. no doubt that high, that Mises is, is more rationalistic than what Hayek is comfortable with. But I don't think Mises would ever come to the position that I know where to put that path. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I think he would not come to that position is because he understands a kind of what we call today the wisdom of crowds kind of idea. Right. In which I might be able to know what I, he might say, I could personally design what the right path would be for me but I don't know what all the other paths will be that will generate in the collective of that. And he calls that the compositive method. And so it's squaring the of human action, but not of human design mm -hmm. that Mises is, you know, emphasizes a bit more than Hayek, the of human action and Hayek emphasizes a little bit more the of not of human design kind of idea. And so, but you know, if you think about both of those as being together, of human action, but not of human design. Um, that's kind of the program of the Adam Smith understanding of the invisible hand. Right. Mises and Hayek are kind of both two sides of a coin in, in some sense, I would say. But there's no doubt that, me, first of all, you know how I, I, I said earlier that Hayek wrote essays. Mises didn't really write essays. He wrote books. Right. Because he really still was a 19th century thinker communicating in the 20th century. And that leads to communication problems, especially when you go from the German language world, which takes no prisoners, right, right to the English world of both the UK and the United States, in which we're like gentle and we're supposed to just, you know, nicely nick and cut our opponent until they bleed to death rather than hit them with a sledgehammer, right? And so, you know, Hayek was much better at that and the kind of mind that you're talking about, like the difference here, Hayek actually has an essay on this called Two Types of Mind, in which he invokes the Isaiah Berlin discussion between the hedgehog and the fox. Right. And many people believe it's a kind of thinly discussed difference between him and Mises, that huh. Mises was a hedgehog in Hayek's idea and that he's a fox. What the fox does is he searches around and gathers up all the different things. He's constantly learning, whereas the hedgehog has one grand big idea and then pushes it through all through life. And one of the things I try to do in the book, I don't necessarily believe that that characterizes Mises and that characterizes Hayek because Hayek has a big theory, right? And Mises has a lot of learning. But if you just go with the broad brush statement, I think you could go to press with that idea that Mises yeah. has a grand idea and Hayek is a constant lifelong learner. And one of the things I try to do in the book is show to young people, because I'm trying to get students to like consider Hayek and Hayekian ideas as a live option in the way they think about economics, politics, and social philosophy today, is that um, Hayek learned constantly throughout his 70 years of writing and that this is an invitation to inquiry for you to continue to learn as well. It's not a fixed answer, right? And so Hayek's attitude is more like Richard Feynman, right? Feynman famously said, I would rather ask questions that can't be answered than provide answers that can't be questioned, right? Mm -hmm. And that was Feynman sort of, and Hayek is sort of grappling with that 
And that is attractive, I think, to the because what it does is it tries to unleash the natural curiosity of young scholars and young you know students or whatnot to think about the world. And that way we're not limited to just what would Hayek say about Trump, right? Right. It's, right. it's how am I going to use these ideas that Hayek has said to address the issue of what's currently going on in the world today. And and that's the that's the fox as opposed to the hedgehog. So I think in back to your question to Russ, one of the ways to maybe think about that is, hey, you know, Mises is embracing of early Husserl and of the early Kantian kind of ideas of Kantian categories of the mind and the way he reasons and all that stuff. That's kind of a hedgehog. Whereas Hayek's more nuanced neo-Kantianism and then, you know, his sort of Jumian skepticism and all those other things, that leads him to being a fox as opposed to this hedgehog. But I also think we over, uh, I mean, now I'm going to be somewhat flipping and maybe two insider baseball. So I apologize, but anybody who's still listening at this point will not. (laughs) Mises, sorry about that. Mises says apodictic certainty. Right. He knows these theorems apodictically true. I think that that's just a bad term. What he really meant was logical soundness. My deductions, if the premises are true and the logical deductions are correct, then my conclusions are going to be true. Right. They're sound. I have a logical soundness, not just logical validity. It's logical soundness. Hayek comes along in his essays and he says, I'm almost certain. Right. Right. And there's a there's a world of difference between being absolutely certain and almost certain. But at the other level, we're still talking about I'm almost certain. Right. Right. So, right. And so Hayek thinks the laws of economics hold, uh, but that we have to they, they manifest themselves in a variety of kind of interesting ways. Right. Because the, the essence of Hayekianism is is both metaphysically and personally is, is humility, right? Right. That That's the whole, the, one. Yeah. the whole idea, the individual can't know everything, which does, we're, I, we're going long here, but, um, um, okay. it does bring me to another, uh, um, you know, and again, I, I, I threw this by, by Russ Roberts and I tried to convince him on our massive two part episode that, uh, he should stop singing the praises of American pragmatism. Um, and it, it, it didn't quite work, but, <laughs> um, I love the Hayek Keynes rap video. I think it's great stuff and 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 very useful. And if if listeners haven't uh, seen it, they should definitely find it on our. Uh, I sorry, both of them. Uh, they, they they can find They're it on amazing. our show notes. Yeah, it's yeah. great. But I've I've been arguing for a very long time that the real and I've always wanted to find and maybe you know about some confrontation between the two. I thought that the the defining intellectual disagreement of the 20th century, at least metaphorically is not between Hayek and Keynes, because that's about all that witchcraft math stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's between Hayek and John Dewey, in the sense that Dewey, you know, I, I, I really wanted to do more prep for this. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and I didn't read, I, I wanted to reread um, Individualism, True and False, which I read years ago. Um, but one of the things I've always gotten out of Hayek um, is, you know, the the that he, again, getting back to this, my point about what it means, uh, why I'm not a conservative, he aligned himself with the individualism that comes out of Adam Smith and out of Locke and in Montesqu- not you know, Montesquieu, and, but to Tocqueville, right, um, and rejected the sort of French hyper-rationalist individualism that I think 
John Dewey with American pragmatism yeah. is the is the sort of dashboard saint figure of this idea that one expert with enough data and enough information can outthink can outthink the market can think better than the market yeah. it's you know he is he is sort of the entire use of knowledge in society essay is kind of like a subtweet of John Dewey mm-hmm. <laughs> and um and every now and then in Hayek he will make references to the problems of 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 pragmatism which i think has that American pragmatism, even though I think John Dewey was a decent and an honorable guy, and that William James has all sorts of really interesting and important things to say about a wide range of subjects, that American pragmatism did more damage to the American system of government than any other philosophical school. And that you don't get the administrative state without American mm-hmm. pragmatism. You don't get the cult of the expert. You don't get, you know, Paul Krugman without American mm-hmm. pragmatism. And that's what Hayek was standing against as he was, you know, his whole, the whole thing about social justice, the whole thing about the extended order of liberty is that you can't rig the game for preferred outcome and that you can't, that the individual can't outthink the, 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 the market and the, the, the collected wisdom that is in, and, and information that is included in prices and whatnot. But I would love to know that there is some essay I could never find where he actually tackles American pragmatism head on because I've never found it. So first, I mean, a lot of those themes, you know, those your your insights there are, I think, are brilliant. Um, I think there's a difference between Dewey, the epistemologist and Dewey, the the pragmatist of progressivism sure, <laughs> that that's kind right. of idea. And so, um, you know, that that. You know, and the relationship between the two of those things are kind of interesting. You know, I would suspect that Russ's uh, 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 appeal to American pragmatism comes from McCloskey, um, who was very influential on on Russ and uh, Deirdre's embracing a pragmatism against the kind of positivist, you know, pos- uh, position. Um, and so, you know, you think about that in regard to economics, but I think that you're a hundred percent correct. This is of course a theme in, in, in one of your earlier books, um, because this progressivism is, is the, the alliance between statism and scientism right. is the alliance in the 20th century that Hayek is against. Um, there was a, a while I was writing my book, a, a, a math professor from, uh, the University of Vienna came out with a book called uh, De- uh, exa- uh, the Exact Thinking in Demented Times. And I argue in the book that um, the Vienna Circle gave us one answer to that. Hayek gave us another. And Hayek's answer is what we're trying to see in this arc of his career. And for the issues that you just talked about, in the first chapter of Law, Legislation, and Liberty, he makes this distinction between what he calls principle versus expediency. And his argument is that when you rely on, for pragmatic reasons, expediency, you'll always overturn the principle for right. the for the the emergencies of the moment, right? And in fact, that is exactly what the progressives were all about. Constitutions pinch only when they're annoying, so let's get rid of them, right? Right, right, right. Uh, right? That kind of idea. And we are with bold, persistent experimentation, right. right? And when you get that, what happens is you lose all these constraints against. Uh, you know, the bad men doing least harm because you made the expedient argument to get rid of the rules that bind the hands of the ruler. But yet 
successful liberalism requires that the rulers have their hands bound by checks and balances, by ver forms of contestation at all different forms of government. And I think to, to just, you know, put this back in, in, in a way that you do, what's fascinating about Hayek's own Nobel lecture is that he just got given the prize, which had just been established in the late 1960s. So he's actually one of the, you know, in the first 10 years, he's one of the first winners of the Nobel Prize in economics. And he gives his banquet speech. And his first thing in his banquet speech is he says, if I was asked whether or not we should have a Nobel Prize in economics, I would have said no, because <laughs> it gives to the recipient too much authority that they shouldn't have. Right. This goes back to your humility point. Right. Then he gets up in his actual lecture. And what he says is that uh, we need to view the economist's role in society more like a gardener rather than as an engineer. So he's making this distinction. And it's about trying to create the institutions that cultivate the entrepreneurial order. So the gardener would let the path in the snow evolve itself. And then you kind of you know, do things with it after you get the collective wisdom of the individuals rather than the idea that I engineer a solution. That's what he's trying to get at. But he says the problem if you do the engineering, he doesn't say that you just produce bad economic growth. What he says is that you threaten, the situation becomes such that you would threaten to be a tyrant over your fellow citizens and a destroyer of civilization. I don't think in any other Nobel Prize in economics any of the recipients were as bold in that kind of claim Yeah, that yeah. if you follow this and you are 100 percent correct that the root cause of that is the progressive ideal of the rule by an expert. It's the progressive ideal of having us have experts who are going to govern over us rather than a self-governing democratic society as Tocqueville en envisioned in which we govern with or, you know, we, we see as citizens rather than seen as a state. And so Hayek is trying to get us to think about what is the way that we as social scientists can contribute to a self-governing democratic society, the true liberalism, as opposed to having the economist as experts that will rule over the system to try to get it to achieve some kind of global optimum which it itself cannot, the discipline cannot achieve. And mm -hmm. so this is the fatal conceit, as you, you know, right. as you pointed out, right? And so that's why he says in the fatal conceit, the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they know about what they imagine they can design. And again, so the, Hayek is like, you know, he's constantly either, you know, pulling on the nostril hairs of the arrogant or poking the knaves in the eye, you know, of that. Right. And so that's an intellectual who I find amazingly refreshing, but of course he's going to be alienated from all of the other people who are believed that they've been trained to be the experts to rule over this thing. And, you know, yeah, it's so funny. I often will point out to when I, when I have, when I talk to like college kids about the, some of this stuff, I always like to say to them, okay, how far back in time, if you had a time machine, how far back in time would you have to go before you were completely useless? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to like, I, 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 I think I've seen enough movies and stuff that I might be able to start a fire right. on my own, but like, I don't know how to like, 
fix a car engine or create, you know, or carve wood or any of these kinds of things. And you have all of these. And th- th- my point that I'm getting at is that there's so much embedded knowledge, right? Yeah. This, that, that the, it, again, it goes back to the eye pencil idea that there's so much stuff that these experts think they know. When in reality, they know like the last 2% of of what went into these things. And, and, you know, take any given CEO and throw them on the shop floor of the company they own and ask them to do the menial, you know, hands-on tasks that is expected of them. Some might know, you know, because they went up through the, they went up through the ranks or they did their due diligence. But my guess is, is that, you know, even Steve Jobs would not be particularly useful on the shop floor and you know, Quinjong province or whatever right. um, about how to do these things. And that's one of the things I like about Hayek is, is like, you know, in a weird way, remember when Barack Obama said, um, you didn't build that right. right. Building on the Elizabeth Warren thing. I hated what he, what they were doing with that. Um, but at the same time, they're right in the sense that the vast majority of things in our lives are outsourced to yep. essentially the cloud of Western civilization. And the experts think that, that they understand all the fine print and all that stuff, and they don't, they're not even close to understanding it. Okay, I, yeah. I want to I very quickly, a couple of the last things that I just wanted to get out of this. Um, so I got myself into a bit of a bind when I first started, you know, in internet years on Methuselah, when I first started writing for <laughs> National Review 20 years ago, uh, the site lourockwell.com was very big and popular at the time. Mm-hmm. And I got into a lot of nasty fights with those guys, um, sort of the paleo libertarians or the Southern libertarians or whatever you want to call them. And I was way too sweeping at the time as saying they were representative of libertarians, you know, mm-hmm. and the last 20 years I've become much more sympathetic to, to libertarianism. I've become much more libertarian. Uh, Nick Gillespie insists that I am a libertarian and I'm not, but I'm getting there. Right. And I'm certainly a Hayekian, and mm-hmm. uh, why? What, what? I think that the um, the the there are few greater oxymorons in the history of political philosophy than libertarians for slavery, mm-hmm. right? Um, or libertarians even for Jim Crow, and yet, what was it about von Mises or that group? You know, where? where when did that branch of the family tree, where does that come from? Um, and why was it that libertarians in the libertarian family, which I was not part of at the time, tended to have an attitude of let's just ignore all of that. Let's ignore the dark side of Ron Paul um, because we like what he says about the Fed and we like what he says about wars. But let's not, you know, let's not let's not dabble with let's not like overturn rocks with these libertarians who want to defend the state's rights of the 19th century stuff. Where is that? Where does that come from? All right. So it's a great question. It's one that uh, is, uh, is, a, is a big puzzle. I try in the Hayek book that we've been talking about in, the, in a chapter called The Reconstruction of Liberalism um, to address what I consider a thinking problem among libertarians. 
uh, not a marketing problem. One of the big problems is people think it's a marketing problem. And then they spoke, you know, how can we gussy up and make, you know, uh, libertarianism look better to the masses or something like that? And I think it's a thinking problem. And what I call in there is is uh, in, in another essay, which called is a response to Sam Friedman's illiberal libertarianism. I call it a, a problem of litmus test libertarianism. And because they view things in an axiomatic way, they thought they could establish a bright red line of you're either over this line, you're not a libertarian, or you're on this side and you're a libertarian. And so it's the opposite of what you were talking about with the fox. There's no trial and error, an axiomatic determination of what that bright red line is. And so part of the fun game to play was to pick a position that's on the libertarian side of that red line that is most obnoxious with respect to the sensibilities of ordinary human beings, right? <laughs> and then hold that as a litmus test. Either you hold to that position or you must be on that other side, okay? And that's what generates the kind of invicti- you know, uh, vicious comments that you were talking about before about Hayek and you know, how you – know, look at all the bad things Hayek believes because he believes in universal basic income or he happens to believe in immunization or whatever. And compare that to Hayek. What Hayek was arguing is basically the way human beings communicate, which is I got to meet you where you are. So right. I'm in a modern context. You believe social justice demands this or justice demands this. Let's get rid of the word social just because that's yeah. a weasel word. But justice demands that we do this. And what I try to say is, OK, so let's consistently think through what you're doing. Where are you coming from? What possible program could fit with that? And so he has this notion called the generality norm, which means policies cannot benefit any one group without benefiting all other groups, right? So that's a sifting mechanism for him. So now think about that, but you can drive a truck through that sifting mechanism compared to like the libertarian bright red line, Mm -hmm. but you can get rid of a lot of bad policies by simply talking about the generality norm too, Right. all right? And so what Hayek does is a totally different kind of exercise. Now, The sociology of the modern libertarian movement, and in particular the relationship to that, to Austrian economics, that's a very, very difficult kind of topic. The uh, Lou Rockwell and Murray Rothbard, they blended those two things so that you got this call of like Mm Austro-libertarianism, which is different from the academics types that were doing Austrian economics within the economics profession. Uh, Rothbart was a brilliant economist himself. Uh, Lou Rockwell was not an economist. He's he's just a you know he was a politico person and very good at fundraising and whatnot. And uh, but but Murray himself was a very good economist. He taught at Brooklyn Polytechnic and then University of Nevada at Las Vegas. But by the 1970s. He was not as interested in having conversations with other professional economists. He mm-hmm. was trying to develop a political movement, you know, that was modern libertarianism. And he, to me, he wrote one of the, the best books on modern libertarianism called For a New Liberty, 
in 19 it was originally published in 1973 and and he wanted to distinguish himself from modern conservatism and offer this alternative and he tried to use the context of the moments with the you know frustration over the Vietnam War and right he tried to reach out to the SDS and all those guys right, right? so you know he, he you know so he tried it, but but his project becomes very much a political philosophy political action activity and then other people are doing this other thing, you know, like trying to, you know, become professors and all that kind of stuff. And so the reason why people ignored it 20 years ago is because we're not very good at prediction. And the all the evidence in the non-internet world point it to that the serious academics are doing X, Y, and Z. The political activist types are doing A, B, and C, and they're in two separate camps. And so let those guys do what they're doing, and we're going to do what we're doing, and they don't have any interconnection to it. But what happened with the internet is that the internet simply swamps <laughs> the yeah. X, Y, and Z of normal academic things. And so all of a sudden now, you know, people are using the term Austrian economics to mean, you know, Ron Paul, I mean, Ron Paul's not an, you know, the thing you think about this way, is there any kind of equivalent person? Let's take Paul Ryan. They sometimes invoke Paul Ryan with Hayek. But if you read what Paul Ryan says, he actually was influenced. He studied economics. He read Milton Friedman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he found Milton Friedman or Arnold Schwarzenegger, who used to give copies of Free to Choose out on the beach, you know, when he was still lifting weights. OK, so but no one would ever say Arnold Schwarzenegger is a monetarist <laughs> no. right? or that Arnold Schwarzenegger had some new original insight into the quantity theory of money. But somehow in the Austrian world, you know, people started to make these like claims that, you know, Ron Paul was this or whatever. And, you know, I mean, I, I, and so it gets it get kind of it get kind of convoluted. And I think it's a real serious thinking problem. It also ended up by communicating a view of Mises, which wasn't accurate. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Is what is is there anything in von Mises that lends race theorists to his cause? I mean, I, 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 I've never understood this connection. Well, remember that Mises himself is radically anti-race. Um, but people, so what, he has an unfortunate passage in liberalism which again got translated into English like 50 years after he wrote it. But when he writes it, he's writing in the mid twenties and he's making a comparison point about what different movements and where liberalism stands with respect. And in Italy, and he argues for at least the time period, he has a line where he says, at least at the moment, the Italian fascists have stopped the utter destruction of society by the Italian Marxists. Mm hmm. Right. And that's, you know, people take that quote out of context, because if you continue reading the the book, his whole attack is on the fascists. Right. And he even wrote a whole book right when he first came to the United States called Omnipotent Government, which is a criticism of the fascist, uh, you know, economy. And so Mises is a, is a he had to escape. He's a, he's a you know, he's a Jewish intellectual himself. He has to escape Europe from threat of the fascist, the fascist you know, you know, confiscated his library. He was an enemy of the people. Right. And they confiscated his library. And then it ends up in the Soviet uh, things, because when they conquered the, 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 the German fascists, they then confiscated Mises library. And then that they found it 
you know, when the Soviet communism collapsed because, it, you know, it was collected there. But Mises was considered an arch enemy, both of the fascists and of the Marxists, because he was a defender in Europe of liberalism. Right. Right. And so I should also point out just he's uh, not at all a race theorist. Right. <laughs> at all. In fact, his whole thing is against racism because that's a violation of the liberal principles of universality. So um, just two quick points. One, um, just in fairness to von Mises on this point, depending on when he wrote this in the 1920s about the Italian fascists, the Italian fascists weren't racist in the 1920s. They're, right. There are, there are lots of other problems with them. Yes. But Mussolini denounced Hitlerism as 100% racism. At, at the, the anti you know, Jews were overrepresented in the Italian fascist party in the early years. They're also overrepresented in the anti-fascist parties because Jews are very politicized in that period. But there was nothing, there was nothing inherently racist about von Mises writing that. I'd say if he wrote it in 1925 or something like that. But one 1927, the book was published, which means he, as probably, you know from writing a book, meant he yeah. probably was writing it in 1925. So one last thing I just want to know, because I ran across this while working on my book, and, and you know, second only to my obsession with American pragmatists is my disdain for the German historicists, who I think are the precursor, they're sort of the John the Baptist of American pragmatism, because all of those guys like Richard Eli or Richard Ellie, right. um, uh, Charles Beard, they all went and studied in Germany in the 19th century and took back and took from that uh, from German historicism. They brought they turned it into American pragmatism. But my understanding is that the Austrian school, the name, the label Austrian school was originally a pejorative that was created by the German historicists. Who, and for, the, for listeners who don't know, the German historicists, they thought everything was subjective. Everything was relative. Everything was contextual. That um, you had to you had to sort of the word empathy comes it was created at this time because it meant sort of understanding everything in its individual context. And there were no universal principles and therefore experts had to sort of understand things in their context and manipulate things in a sort of Darwinian, you know, accelerating Darwinian fashion. And the Austrians uh, like von Mises and those guys stood athwart all that and said, no, there are actually universal principles that these things if something works here, it will also work there. That's how science works. And so my understanding is that the Austrian school as a label was originally pejorative because of the sort of the, 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 the Paul Krugmans of the German 19th century uh, <laughs> wanted to be you – know, because it stood athwart the idea of, of, of expertise. Do I have that right? Yes. I mean, the, the, you know, that the story that you just told about the Americans – going to get their PhDs in Germany and then coming back. It's an extremely complicated story, but a powerful one. And a, a, exactly along the narrative lines that you just gave, what happens is they, they're, they're believers in social gospel. They go over there, God dies, but they learn rather than creating the kingdom of God on earth, they're going to create the kingdom of man on earth. They come back and then you have basically the progressive movement starts going. Um, and they generate different things similar to your, your, your own, uh, earlier work or whatever. Tom Leonard from Princeton wrote a sure. fantastic book called illiberal reformers, which explains this in detail and the Austrians stand against that. And so they stood against German historical and the American institutionalists and the German historical school, uh, writers, when Menger published his book, he offered it to the Germans as what he thought a corrective to their work. And they responded by saying, 
you stupid Austrians. <laughs> you know, right. We don't need your no. You know, we don't need your stinking corrective. And what happened <laughs> was that uh, Mises became the main defender in the continent of the Mangarian position against the German historical school. And so that's why when Mises finally comes to the United States, he's well known as this defender of theory and the importance of the principle versus the expediency. And when he comes to the United States, he's the target. He's an old man already by academic standards at that time, but he's a target of the institutionalists that they're going to, he's their whipping boy, right? Uh-huh. And they're going to, and so what happens is Mises becomes an iconic figure on the right rather than just an economist that needs to be debated with because he became this, and you know, it doesn't help right after World War II, your name is von, you know, Ludwig von Mises, you know, right, 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 right. all the rhetoric that goes in that. And so I think that Mises gets very treated unfairly. Um, in this, but you're uh, 100% correct that the original use of the term Austrian school was not at all given to the Austrians by the Austrians. They just wanted to do good economics. Right. Like, here I am, I'm doing good economics, but the Germans said, you Austrians. And so then, like a lot of times, it sticks. And when it sticks, it's hard to get rid of it as a term. And so that's why it becomes really kind of fascinating when terms have these evolving meanings and and whatnot and distortions how do you correct those and that's a big sociological issue that i don't know any of us have an answer to sure sure all right so closing question yep can't you make the argument first of all thanks for doing this i know we went long and apologies to readers who aren't interested in hayek but there's this there, there are a multitude of other podcasts you could have listened to by now, um, but I, I love this stuff. Can't you make the case that we are sort of in a golden age, intellectually speaking, a golden age of Hayekianism? I mean, he's certainly there. Institutionally, there are probably more Hayek and von Mises are Austrian disciples in uh, in at, at, at universities institutions than any ever before right i mean I, I the reason i bring it up is simply because one of the reasons you know one of these sub arguments about how we got trump and all of this stuff and i'm glad we didn't talk about trump at all on this is how uh you know conservatives right uh never conserved anything they never won anything yeah and i always point out no we've actually won a lot of things but we also lose a lot of things because not everything is about intellectual fights a lot of things are about how life progressives and all the rest. And we have a negative negativity bias anyway, but you just look at the Federalist Society, you look at all sorts of things. If you look at the influence of Friedrich Hayek today, has there been a decade where it was greater than, than this one? I mean, so uh, I, that's a great question. Um, and, uh, I try in the back of the book, uh, to pr- do a citation study, which tries to show aspects of this. And it's pretty amazing how successful Hayek was in terms of his citation pattern compared with his peers. So among Nobel Prize winners, um, Hayek is second only to to Kenneth Arrow uh, in terms of citation in other Nobel Prize winners' Nobel lecture. Uh, What that means is that they get the chance to summarize what they're all about. And ends up by Hayek is actually only Kenneth Arrow was more influential in the fundamental way that people think about economics than Hayek. And if you look at Hayek's citation 
you know, count over time, uh, you know, in terms of not just among other Nobel Prize winners, but in general, among the first 10 Nobel Prize winners, I think he's like maybe third or fourth on the list of lifetime citations, which is pretty amazing uh, when you think about his impact. And so, and that's just in the scientific or uh, uh, like an effort to gather the scientific. If you think about the number of think tanks, the, you know, the I internet podcasts like yours, but also Russ Roberts and all these things that never could have been imagined years ago that you would reach these kind of audiences to talk about these ideas. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing what's going on, but, you know, as with all of these things, great, you know, challenges provide great opportunities and there's how do we communicate information to people? How do you overcome these kind of tribal, um, you know, uh, it, moral intuitions? You know, that's the big tension. The moral intuitions are at, are at odds with the moral demands of the great society. And this is what Frank Fukuyama kind of, you know, is now like trying to like peel away and look at uh, because it's quite obvious that in terms of just the delivery of a system – uh, you know, there's a certain advantage to liberalism that traditional liberalism that hasn't been uh, bested by anyone else. But yet at the same time, you know, people agitate against it, you know, as soon as they. So what's going on with all of that? And, and how do I understand that? And how do I understand the rise of right wing and left wing popular, you know, populist movements? And I think this is the challenge that people today are going to have to confront in taking Hayekian ideas and enlisting their own curiosity to engage in the problems of today. And, you know, hopefully that I don't have any answers for them, but I have suggestions about how they might want to frame those problems. Sure, sure. Well, Peter, thank you for doing this. I hope to have you back on um, because I, I'm sure I have other grievances that I need to bounce yeah. off of you. <laughs> well, I greatly appreciate the opportunity and, and, uh, and I love talking to you, Joan, and oh. keep up the great work. Well, thank you very much. Thanks again for coming on. Okay. Thank you. See you, man. All righty. All right. So uh, Peter has left the building, figuratively speaking, since he was never in it. Sounded How did, how, how did the audio sound, Jack? I, it's hard for me to tell. It was it, The audio had a very audible quality. Excellent. That's what I look for in, in, in audio. What did you think of the uh, discussion? Well, I have two thoughts, and both of them are time travel related, but you'll see why. And this is very on brand for me. But first thought, when you were talking about how Hayek and the road to serfdom, uh, how in hindsight it can kind of seem like very strident that Hayek was writing in, the, in 1944, I believe, that we were on this road to serfdom. Like, obviously, where's the serfdom? Right. But this is the, the problem. Like sometimes You're soaking in it. Sorry, yeah. Well, no. Well, he – we listened to him and so mm -hmm. we're not on the road to serfdom. So in a way, this is exactly – I don't know if you're aware of this, but in the early 2000s, there on, on internet message boards, there was this guy named John Titor uh -huh. who claimed to be from the future in which the United States was uh, rent apart by civil war. And he gave all these warnings about like what we need to do to stop it and they gave all these very specific predictions about what would happen. And of course, none of them happened. And people were like, oh, obviously, it's just some guy messing around. And it's, no, he we he altered the timeline. Yeah, yeah. He, so he looks like a fool, but really, we're the fools because uh, we don't, we just refuse to accept that a time traveler was among was in our midst. It's very much like you know all these people who were talking about American politics 
in a context of a pre orb touching world right <laughs> yeah because <laughs> we know that earth logic went out the window with that but yeah. anyway the other the other time travel related, related point was um the throwaway comment or i won't say throwaway comment nothing on here should be thrown away the aside about uh, how far into the past could you go before you were completely useless uh uh-huh. I think I have a pretty much uh, like beginning of time or beginning of human race utility, given my um, distance running abilities. As long as those uh, like no injuries beset me or anything, because like all there will always be uses for someone who can go uh, run long distances at a high at a high speed. Right, but my point is is that you know as a self sufficient human being. Oh yeah, yeah. My my hope would be that I like stumble upon some tribe and then like demonstrate. Like run around a bunch and then sort of like get get them the idea like oh we have a scout here great yeah. so but beyond that like I yeah useless right I mean this is a point that Russ Roberts makes a lot that if you imagine yourself living alone you have to imagine yourself living poor yeah because the the division of labor is what makes us all rich right it's I use a similar example um, to the time travel thing when I talk to college kids about social capital right social capital is like the, the the network of friends, the knowledge you have, the 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 family connections, the, the 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 people who care about you in various intangible ways, and you know you hear people say all the time, you know you should help out the homeless because you could be homeless tomorrow, and the reality is, is I'm not trying to make fun of the homeless. I think you know the, 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 it's a real problem in this country. And I've been wanting to do a podcast on homelessness for a while because I think it's actually a fascinating subject, but. Um, a lot of stuff would have to happen for me to be homeless tomorrow, right? I mean, first of all, my house in some way would have to be taken from me or burned down. I would have to lose all of my friends who wouldn't <laughs> let me sleep on their couch or in one of their spare rooms. Well, you're on your way. Yeah, no, no I, I'm not saying that's not doable. <laughs> um, I would have to um, lose everything in my bank account. I would have to lose every ounce of reputation I have that people would trust me to pay them back if they lent me money. Right. I have I have a lot of social capital. I have family that, you know, I could go to Alaska and I could live indefinitely up there. I could go to New York, you know, and stay with family there. You know, what What I'm realizing as you say all this is that if there's anyone who could totally destroy your social capital, it's the person that you're talking to right now. I'm not saying you are. Uh, I couldn't destroy it completely, but I could do a lot of damage. OK, well, we're going to revisit this topic on the next podcast because I made this uh, decision on the fly as part of the emergent or spontaneous order of this podcast. And I did want to ask Peter about the differences between emergent and spontaneous order. Are they just synonymous or, or, or is there a difference? Um, because it's weird. People have switched to emergent order rather than spontaneous order. And I'm wondering what the, the thinking there is, if there is any. Anyway, more on that later. But we decided that since this was... I think or I hope sort of manna from heaven for Hayek nerds, but not everybody out there is a Hayek nerd, um, that we're going to do a separate sort of what I did for my summer vacation podcast right now. And we're going to record that and probably release it shortly after the the, the Betke one for people who don't um, – who for whom that was not their cup of tea. Um, I love this stuff. I don't care that, that, that it's not for everybody. It's my podcast, not yours, and I'll do what I want. But um, – um, I'm also uh, not indifferent to the demands of the audience. So, so oh, by the way, uh, Chris Steyerwalt and Dana Perino want to beat us in the great race for positive reviews on iTunes. Please don't let this happen. 
they get nicer. Th- they have nicer things than us already. Um, they shouldn't have that. Um, uh, so please review it um, at at iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are, are reviewed. Uh, again, at Jonah Remnant on Twitter. Um, we love to get the feedback. Um, Remnant, what's their Gmail address again? Uh, the Remnant Pod at Gmail dot com. The Remnant Pod at Gmail dot com. And uh, thanks again to everybody uh, for tuning in, uh, so to speak. I can explain why we say tuning in even though there's no tuning to Jack on the next episode, just like I had to explain what on the air means. Um, And uh, um, stay tuned for the next exciting episode of The Remnant, which is coming very shortly. 